So once upon a time, there was a boy. This was a blonde-haired boy with brown eyes, and he was a part of a regular family. And this family did things that families like to do when it was nice outside. They would go as a, as a family, and they'd walk along their coastline. And, and the little boy loved it. He would love to feel the wind on his face and the warmth of the sun on his skin. And, and he would climb the hill to look over into the sea, and he'd, he'd see people fishing. He'd watch the fishermen throw out the nets and pull in fish. And he loved to watch that. And, and on many hot days, his friends would join him, and they would jump into the sea together. And then when they weren't swimming, they would skip rocks, and they'd watch them jump across the lake three, four, five times, and they would laugh and smile. And he was a great kid. And then as he got older and the years went on, loss and disappointment flooded his life and began to accumulate and kind of show on his face. And soon the cares began to overshadow the joys of his youth. And he came less often to the sea and he didn't like to burden his friends with all the talk of the darkness that was crowding in his mind. And so he withdrew from his friends and his family, and he'd just prefer to sit alone, walk alone, eat alone. He preferred the isolation. And at night, the neighbors knew something was wrong because they would hear him crying and the moaning and the shrieking and the wailing, and they, uh, it would happen at all hours, and it made him really uncomfortable. And his, his family saw how he would hurt himself, and they would have done anything to bring him back. But they found they couldn't. They tried everything they knew how to do. They used all the resources they had. They asked all the professionals. They literally had nothing else left. He seemed so far gone. They could understand why his friends quit coming around. Because frankly, he was hard to be around. And so it seemed like a, a long time coming. They made a decision. They'd put it off as long as they could, but um, they agreed if they don't do something, he's going to hurt someone else. So they, uh, they sent him away. And the sky was an odd color that day. It was gray. And it was cold and kind of dark. And there was so much sadness and so many questions in their mind. So they felt sad and despair, but honestly, they felt a little relief too. Because their life had to go on as well. And so... What hope of normal life was left for this friend now? He was out alone. He might as well be dead. In fact, where they sent him away, um, it's where they go, where they're forgotten, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And to be honest, he was kind of beginning to become accustomed to the dark. He'd tell you probably that he preferred it. You know, the memories of that four-year-old carefree blonde boy was just a distant thought now. The warm sun on his face, the cool splash of the water, the friends that brought him so much joy, that was no longer an option in his life. Darkness was all that remained, and he was alone. Until he wasn't. See, this story is a story that many of us maybe in this room can relate to, or we know someone who has gone through something like this. This is a story of someone who experienced tough stuff, and found healing through Jesus. 
And as we journey with Jesus through the book of Mark, we get to read amazing stories of what Jesus does for people. So last week, uh, John uh, told the story of Jesus being on the boat with the disciples, and there was that crazy storm, right? Remember where this was? And, and they were, like, freaking out, and they're like, okay, Jesus, you're sleeping. Do you not care that we're about to die here, right? And Jesus says, oh, my goodness, you guys, calm down, waves and wind, and everything calms down. And so I, I, I want to just for a second give you a, a glimpse on, like, maybe what the disciples were thinking. This is my interpretation, but I'm thinking the disciples were on this boat, this crazy weather, their nerves are shot. They think they're about to die. Jesus calms it all. They're like, who is this guy that even the wind and the waves listen to him? And so they're calmed down. They see the shore up ahead, and they're like, oh, good. Get me off this boat, right? I need to get on dry land because my, I'm kind of feeling it right now. So the disciples pull up to the, the side of, of the, the shore, and they're um, about to get out of the boat, and they're getting it tied up, and Jesus gets out, and this man comes rushing at them from this, like, graveyard, this tomb area. It's a madman. They're thinking, how fast can we get out of here? Because they're, like, their nerves are shot, right? And so they're thinking, how long is it going to take to get back to the boat? Guys rush into them, and, of course, they look at Jesus, and Jesus isn't thinking about running away from a crazy person. Jesus, of course, wants to engage with this person. I think, I'm, I bet they're going like, oh good, this is going to be great. What, what is this going to be like? So we pick up this story in Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, and this is where Jesus heals the demon-possessed man. And I love this story. If you have been reading along in the book of Mark, I hope you are enjoying it as much as I am because it is a blast. I love the way that Mark writes this book. But first, let me just set the stage for a second. They pull up to the, um, in, in verse 1, it says, they went across the lake to the region of Gerenis. Oh, I can never say this. Garrisons, thank you. Um, and in the book of Luke, uh, Luke refers to this place as the opposite of Galilee. So Galilee was Jewish, a Jewish land, very kosher. This place was the opposite. It's Roman uh, territory. It is not kosher. There are... Um, uh, there's everything that's unclean. There are spirits. There's a tomb. There's pigs, and um, and there's uh, the territory is controlled by the Romans. The Roman army or the legion legion represented like an army of like six thousand men had gained control of this place. So this land that they're in, it's politically charged. Um, people who held all of the power, sex, money. They're the ones who had the upper hand. So if you were a tax collector or a prostitute or a politician, this was the place for you. So you've got Jesus and his disciples. They're coming on this land. This is an alien space for them. They don't know what to do with themselves here. So this is their first step into here in Jesus's journey. Okay, so we, so we read on about this. So then this man is rushing out to him, and he literally represents everything that's unclean. In the, in the Jewish world. Okay, so it says in, in uh, verses 2 through 5, it says, When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So we know who's in this story here. We know there's a man and there's impure spirits and there's people in the town who were unable to control him. Um, the spirits here, we know that they're, uh, they would um, 
occupy a host with the sole purpose of tarnishing, of destroying the identity of this person, of um, wrecking the Imago Dei, this image bearer of Christ. And they were doing a very good job. They left him a human wreck. He was, liter- he was naked. He was isolated. He was self-destructive. And he was totally obsessed. Um, when we read this, uh, the, the, he was, he was uh, c- uh, consumed by the spirit. And um, some translations say potentially he was just overwhelmed by the political powers that were there. Whatever it may be, it was caused him to get uh, go crazy and out of his mind. The people in the town here, they had done their best to try to subdue him. They, they undoubtedly felt that this man was mad, right? His appearance and his behavior put him in the crazy category very easily. Um, he definitely conformed to the popular diagnosis of insanity. And what did they do when they couldn't, um, when they couldn't control his behavior? When, he, when, when, when he, they no longer could uh, control his outburst, they bound him. And when they couldn't bind him anymore and he would break those chains... He would, they did what? They sent him out. They sent him away. He's too much. He's loud. He makes us uh, uncomfortable. He's awkward. Let's just, out of sight, out of mind, right? Let's just get him out of here. Well, what is the practice of our day? Just curious. I'm just thinking about that. When appearance and behavior don't conform to what's normal or what's acceptable, what, you know, what do we do with people who are different than us? Maybe they're criminals and they act out and they're violent towards somebody else, so we can put them away, right? We can, we can lock them up. But what if they don't go that far? What if they're just different, make us uncomfortable? What do we do? Do we ignore them? Look the other way? Pretend they don't exist? Well, when the attitude and the actions of the people in this town didn't work, they send them away, out to wander restlessly in the wild hill country, and to dwell in the caves. And these served as a dwelling for the poorest of the poor people in their community. Um, it was thought that they were haunted with, with demons. And um, it was the most suitable spot for anybody to go who was cut off from ordinary life. When they were here, they're pretty much as good as dead. So let's continue on in here. It's Mark um, six through thir- uh, 5, 6 through 13. It says, when he saw Jesus, so this man comes rushing out of the tombs. they just come from the sea onto the land. It says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus looked at him and asked, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And Jesus gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake, and they were drowned. Oh, poor pigs, right? Like, let's lament for a moment the 2,000 pigs that lost their lives in the making of the story. But we're going to move on from that because that's not the point of the story. But it's kind of, kind of like a, a extreme. I don't know. Let's, let's look at what do we know. I mean, this is what this, this story has said. God heals a demon-possessed man. So this is kind of the, the bulk of this. 
what do we know about this? First of all, we know that Jesus has all of the authority and the power available, right? He, we, we see that at his baptism, where we see the presence of the Holy, of the Holy Trinity. We know that before um, the, the Spirit, the man ran to meet Jesus, Jesus didn't introduce himself. Jesus wasn't from that area. The spirit, there's a spiritual world going on here. These demons knew exactly who Jesus was, right? They're the ones that they said, hey, Jesus, wait a second. Don't torment me. Hold on. So we know Jesus, we, we see Jesus' authority revealed when he can calm the seas, right? He has power over the seas, and he can to- toss out that, uh, this crazy demon-possessed person, right? So we know he's got authority. We also know that many people longed to see Rome defeated. Rome, it was the, they were the bad guys, right? Um, they, they were, uh, in, in, their, in their day, the book, we read in the book of Daniel that they referred to the sea as the place where monsters came from. And so this story would make sense. They would want um, Rome, any symbol of Rome, to be thrown into the sea, Right? So the best place for Rome was back into the sea. And Jesus comes into Roman territory, and these unclean beings are, are trying to ruin this man's life, this human's life. And so the answer's clear, right? Into the sea, we'll kill him. But we also know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? And that he came to bring God's sovereign rule for all of humankind, Jews and Romans. So Jesus didn't believe in fighting violence with counterviolence. So the pigs running off the cliff seems a little extreme if you don't look at the whole God narrative. See, the actual climax of this story doesn't happen here in this part of Mark. Mark is pointing to a bigger picture of God where Jesus is the central character in this whole story. See, the actual climax of this story, of this God narrative, of the Jesus story, of this journey that Jesus is on, is that Jesus himself, will end up much like this man from the caves. He's going to be shouting incomprehensible things while he's naked and isolated outside of his town, his body being torn apart on the cross by Roman torture of crucifixion. The climax of this story is how Jesus will deal with the demons When the final healing takes place at his resurrection. See, he came to let the enemy do the very worst to him. He came to share in our pain and our suffering, to tell that man at the tomb, like, I got you. I'm in this with you. He came to take the full force of evil on himself to go to the place of ultimate separation from God so that we don't have to do that. So in this story, beneath the pain and the political injustice that we see that goes on between Rome and the rest of the world, the emotional and the physical enslavement that we see, there is a spiritual battle going on, light and dark fighting for control over the precious children of God. Their lives are eternal. Our lives are eternal. And if you leave out that part of that of that story, the spiritual realm, and you simply focus on violence and counterviolence, you're just going to get nowhere. So Jesus, in this story, he sees a man in pain, in distress, in hurt. 
and he meets that need, and he heals him in his distress. The pigs running off the cliff, and uh, I, I think that just shows us that the demon's ultimate goal for, for, uh, maintain, uh, for taking over a body is to kill the body. So Jesus says, you don't get, you don't get my child. And the, they, they say, give us permission to go into the pigs. Jesus says, okay, you can go in the pigs. Leave my person alone. So they, he, he lets them go in the pigs. The demon sent the pigs over the cliff, right? Jesus didn't send the pigs over the cliff. We got that straight? Okay. Leave my Jesus alone. Because well, so let's see what happens next. Okay, so the, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened of the demon-possessed man and told, the pigs ab- and told about the pigs as well. <laughs> they can't tell the pigs because they don't know. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So those who were in charge of the pigs were the only ones who witnessed this. They go into the town. They, they tell what happened, that 2,000 of their livelihood just ran off the cliff. I'm sure they're a little upset about that. But also this miracle that they saw. So the people from the town come in, and they see this man sitting, dressed, in his right mind. This man... You know, they must be thinking, um, is this the same guy? Like, the man we couldn't hold down, he kept breaking apart all those chains. He was sitting. The one who had terrified others, like screaming and running through the streets, and he was running around naked in the tombs. I mean, he's got clothes. He's fully clothed now, and he's in his right mind. And he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. You know, when we study this, uh, when someone is clothed, um, when 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 another person clothes someone, it's an actual uh, a symbol of adoption. That this man is now adopted. That God gave him clothes. Adopted him into his family. And he's sitting with Jesus. We also know that when we read in, in Scripture that that posture of sitting at the feet of Jesus is a, a posture of discipleship. So this man who was isolated and alone and had no one and no family and no friends and just the demons in his life, is a child of God, a disciple of Jesus. This is amazing. And so this was such a huge transformation. His, his humanity had been fully restored, and all of these people were terrified. They were shocked. They were stunned. Are these the same people who sent him to the tombs in the first place? Aren't they a part of the community that said, you don't fit? You need to go. Did they they get it wrong? Did they give up too soon? What if this powerful Jesus shines a light in our lives to show us where we failed? If having Jesus around is going to point out all the places we messed up, we don't want him here. So what do they do? They beg him to go. Like, you need to leave. We don't, want, we don't want that again. And Jesus doesn't force himself on anyone. Jesus invites people to be with him into relationship, but he doesn't force it. And so what does Jesus do? 
We read on in 18, it says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, which means Jesus got in the boat to leave. They said, we don't want you. He said, okay. So as, as Jesus is getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him. But he said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Now I want you to think for a minute about this man. Think about what this might have meant. Stay with Jesus, who gave him a new life, who got him some clothes, who healed him, or go back to town, the place where you were rejected and left alone and dismissed. He was not afraid of Jesus. He was afraid of those people. He, it says he begged to go with him. Let me be one of your disciples. But here's what I think, here's what I think happened. This is my interpretation because it doesn't say anymore here. But in a way that only Jesus can do, he calmed this man's fears. He said, you've got to go. You have to go and show what God has done. Your family will not know what to make of you. Your friends aren't going to know what to make of you at first. They'll, they'll be afraid. They'll think of how you used to act and how you used to behave, but they'll be so glad to get you back when they see that you've been healed and you've been set free. Jesus says, I'm not going there. They don't want me. You see, they're demanding that I leave, and I don't force myself on anyone. So you must do this. I have plans for you. This healing, there's a purpose for this, and you're going to tell them what God has done. You will be my first apostle to the Gentiles. You are an important piece to my story. And I think this man, he hugged Jesus. He helped the disciples get back in the boat, and he's like, hey, sorry about the whole scaring you thing at the beginning, you know. Help push them out into the, into the sea. I think he stands at the, at the edge of the shore, and he watches the boat drift away and maybe has memories of that day where the sky was dark and gray. But it's different now. Those clouds have lifted. And he can slowly remember those younger years when he would run along the same coastline with the warmth on his, warmth on, uh, on his skin and the sun on his face. And he's scared to go meet his friends and family, but he feels that power that God has given him to go and do that. He cannot wait to tell the world what God did for him. You see, that's what Jesus does. He comes and he heals our lives and he brings light where the darkness has been. And you might, you might be the man in this story. You might have overcome something that only Jesus can do. Chances are you also know somebody who is this man. Chances are there's a little boy or a little girl in your class who's a little different. It's just easier to not pay attention to. Or maybe there's a student in the lunchroom who just always sits alone and you just prefer it that way. Or a neighbor on your street whose house is a mess and the cops are always there and Kids are ill-mannered, and you just would prefer not to have anything to do with them. 
See, one thing, when you read the book of Mark, you may, have, may or may not have noticed that he uses the word immediately or uh, at once. It's this very, like, it's a sense of urgency. Like, they, at once they go and they, they go. See, I think we get it wrong. I think we, we feel that our, um, the urgency is quickly tell people about Jesus so they can say the sinner's prayer so if Jesus comes back tomorrow, they won't spend eternity in hell, right? Like, save as many souls as possible so then we'll be safe from burning in hell forever. But see, I, I, I don't think that's the whole story. See, there is so much evil in this world. You know this, right? You live here. We see it everywhere, every day. And we are already in eternity. Dallas Willard says, eternity is in session right now. So the urgency in which we proclaim the good news of Jesus is to live out the great commandment here. Not in case Jesus comes back tomorrow and we get left behind. The urgency we have is because with every waking moment that a child of God lives in the dark is one moment too long. And I hesitate to go here, but there are 17 families in the state of Florida who would have, uh, their life, their story would have been very different had someone brought light to that shooter's life. What would have happened if in sixth grade that shooter had somebody bring the gospel to his life? Let's just go back even further. What if someone saw him sitting alone in the lunchroom and said, let's be friends? Come to church with me. Or maybe second grade. What if someone stepped in and stopped the bullying then? See, here's what I think. I think we have opportunities all the time, everywhere we look, to be loved to people who are walking in the darkness. I think we say not in this town, not in El Dorado, not in our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools. We're not going to let any human being be treated with anything less than the love that they deserve. We're going to see our friends and our neighbors with the eyes of Jesus. We're not going to care if it messes with our schedule or our reputation. We know in light of eternity, what matters is what God thinks of us and not what our friends think of us. And honestly, guys, loving others, simple act of loving, caring for others, literally could be the difference between life and death. It literally could be. So here's our idea. See, I'm all about next steps. Like, okay, great stuff. Okay, now what do we do with it? Um, over the next couple weeks, uh, we are going to um, continue to talk about Butler Mission Week. Where at BMW this summer, we're going to plan a, a week where we go out and we serve in our community. But there's some work to be done before that. Okay, and um, so we're going to love our neighbors. We hear you talk about that, um, and I need you to dial in with me real quick here. Um, you've, you've seen the neighboring block that we've, we've showed. I've got this image up here. Um, who's my neighbor? And so what we're going to ask you to do, families, adults in this room, families in this room, that house in the middle, that's your house. I want you to think of the houses that surround your house. There's two steps here. First step, you're going to learn your neighbor's names. We're so isolated and alone here. We are going to call people out of it. We're going to bring them into the light. So you're going to learn their names. I don't mean you have to go knock on their door. However you need to do it, you're going to learn their names. 
You're going to begin to pray for them. You're going to ask God to show you ways to love your neighbor. Okay? And the second step is the one that we really want you to pray about and engage with us. We want to, around Easter time, we want to be a church that um, holds a bunch of block parties. So we want you to say, I'm going to learn my neighbor's names, and I'm going to meet a couple of them, and we're going to meet on our street on a Friday night, and we're going to grill out for the only reason to just be friends. That's it. So we want you to do that. On your Connect card, there's a place for you to check that if you're interested in doing that. We would hope that would be really easy. Nothing special. We're not talking bouncy houses. We're just talking like food. We all like to eat. Jesus really liked to party, and he liked to eat. We're going to talk about that more next week, but um, food gathers us together. So we want you to do block parties. Students, okay, raise your hand if you're a student in here right now. Engage with me. I see you. Raise your hand. Hi. I see you. Okay. This is not just an adult thing. You know what? You guys have a lot of attention on you. You know this? Do you feel it? Do you feel the pressure? I feel the pressure for you. <laughs> you have a lot of pressure. Um, but here's what, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> this is you in the middle. And what I want you to do, and I think this is a very easy thing. I want you to go to school tomorrow. Please go to school tomorrow. <laughs> right? Can I get an amen? <laughs> Um, and I want you to sit down in your first class, and I want you to sit in your chair, your desk, and I want you to look at the eight desks that surround you, and I want you to think of the names of each student that sit, that sit in each one of those desks, okay? You can probably put yourself there right now. You know where you sit, and I want you to recall their name, and I want you to be very aware of how you feel when you think of this person, right? So you see Oh, there's Kara. I know Kara. Kara and I have been in the same school since we were in kindergarten. Um, but I want you to be aware. Sometimes when you think of someone's name, you get that angsty feeling like, oh, we don't really like each other. Or, oh, we had a fight. Or, or eh, that's my best friend. I love him. But I want you to be very aware of those feelings. Imagine what would happen if in every class you looked at all of the people who surrounded your desks and you said, God Give me the words, give me the opportunity to love them the way that you would want me to love them. And this is all you're going to do. It's so easy. It doesn't require you talking to anyone. It doesn't require anything from you except to pray for the people who surround you. But then there's a next step, okay? The next step, this one is going to be a little bold and maybe potentially out of your comfort zone. But I have an idea. It's not really my idea. But um, there is a... a, um, I guess it was just a, a young guy who started something in Florida about a year ago. And uh, it, this would be the student version of neighborhood block parties. But I want you to see a little story, something called We Dine Together. We're going to watch it right here on the screen. When the lunch bell rings at Boca High in Boca Raton, Florida, 3,400 kids spill into the courtyard and split into their social groups. But not everyone gets included. As we first reported last March, here at Boca High and at schools across the country, someone always sits alone. It's not a good feeling, like you're by yourself, and that's something I, I, I don't want anybody to go through. Dennis Esteban is a Haitian immigrant. When he came here in first grade, he says he felt isolated, especially at lunch. 
Now he's popular, but he has not forgotten that first grade feeling. To me, it's like if we don't try and go make that change, who's going to do it? So with some friends, Dennis started a club called We Dine Together. We Dine. Together. We Dine. Together. We Dine. Their mission is to go into the courtyard at lunchtime to make sure no one is starving for company. Dennis. I'm new here. You're new here? When did you first come here? For new kids especially, the club is a godsend. This is Gabriel. Gabe, how you doing? Since it started last year, hundreds of friendships have formed. Some very unlikely. You're probably meeting kids you never would meet on the football team. Ever. <laughs> Gene Maxmaridu actually quit the football team, gave up all the perks that come with it, just so he could spend more time with this club. I don't, I don't mind not getting a football scholarship. This is what I really want to do. Just imagine how different your teenage years would have been. What's your name? If the coolest kids in school all of a sudden decided you mattered. We'll get to know each other better. It obviously takes a lot of empathy to devote your lunch period to this. Yes. Either that or first-hand experience. I went from coming from a school that I always had friends to coming to where I had nobody. So, Club member Allie Seeley transferred a few years ago. She says with no one to sit next to, lunch can be the most excruciating part of the day. It's really unfair. It's honestly an issue. Meeting someone who actually cares and, lis and listens to what you have to say really makes a difference. And that could happen at lunch. That could happen at our club. Since we first told this story, Dennis has graduated from high school, but not from this mission. He's now traveling the country, opening We Dine Together chapters at other schools. Fifteen so far, with more than 100 slated for the new year. And if we're lucky, when he's done showing kids how to make outsiders feel accepted. Yeah, I'll be around tomorrow if you want to eat lunch together. He can teach the rest of us. Steve Hartman, On the Road, in Boca Raton, Florida. The school lunchroom can be brutal. I've heard, I've heard uh, excuses of kids would say, um, but they like to sit alone. They're introverted. They don't like to be bothered. Don't talk to them. Um, I, I'm going to argue. I put, I'll push back on that all day. Um, because we were not created to be alone. We were created to be together with people, with other people. And if you would do the pre-work of in your classroom praying, mending relationships outside of the lunchroom, I think your lunch experience might be a little different. It might be different for the other kids as well. Genuine care and concern for other human beings is always the preferred way. I don't want to sit with another heartbroken mom or dad or grandparent who says, um, tells me that their son or daughter has chosen to eat alone at lunch because it's just easier than feeling rejected. It's easier than being laughed at for being different. But it can stop. It can stop. On the response card, there's a place on there where you can check. I want more about We Dine Together. It's a student movement, but um, it's not just this church. It can be all of the students in our community coming together to say, no one's going to be alone or isolated. 
So we're going to put those uh, response cards in the basket here in just a minute. In fact, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward as we close out our, our time this morning. But before we do that, I want to close us with a, a word from, from the Psalms this morning. It said, Some wandered in desert wastes, some sat in darkness and in gloom, prisoners in affliction and in irons. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. The man in the caves was once a boy in the warm embrace of his mom. The awkward kid in your class once sat next to you in kindergarten and you used to skip rocks and ride your bikes down the street. Are there people in your lives crying to be delivered, waiting for you? Are you the next apostle to your school? Are you the next apostle to your workplace? What is God going to do in you, through you, in this community? We get to worship a loving, good Father. We come together on Sundays to experience the love and grace of a warm community of believers. We participate in God's generous love, generous gifts, generous blessings in our lives. During this time in our morning worship, we show our generosity and gratitude and our trust in God's continued provision in our lives. We give our tithes and our offerings to this community because we believe God is good and doing a good work here in us and through us. And so when the offering baskets come by, please put your Connect card in there and allow us to pray with you and continue with you. But let's go to God in prayer. Good, loving God, thank you for being the light in our lives. Thank you for bringing the warmth of your love and your presence in this space. We ask you to bless this humble offering, that you continue to use it to further your kingdom here on earth in El Dorado. Thank you for our schools and our students and our families in this church community. What a blessing they are. Equip them, give them the courage to trust you in all the things of their lives, their finances, their relationships, their time, their children, their hearts. Thank you for giving us Jesus, for inviting us into relationship with you, and for your love in spite of all of our shortcomings. We love you and we worship you. In the precious and holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen.